Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Hi friends, best friends, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. It's Women's History Month, and uh, nothing's changing around here. We have always been doing stories of women, and we will always be, until someone offers me $10 billion to do a single episode on a male criminal. I'll do it. I'll, I'll throw that in. Today we have a story from the country of India. We are... As I, as I said slash threatened in the last episode, we are leaving the U.S. We'll be back. You know we'll be back. You know we'll be back to Florida before long. Oh, gosh. We actually might be in Florida way sooner than you think. But today we're going abroad to a case in India that is ooh, fascinating and, I'll say it, really, really scandalous. Now, I never would have heard of this case if it wasn't for an amazing listener. I want to shout out to Christiana Lilly who is a journalist that you should all hire. And she told me about this story. It's uh, unusual for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because the crime happened 30 years ago, but the case was closed very, very shockingly recently. And um, there is a criminal broad involved in this case, so don't worry. But the story is really more about the 30 years in between the crime and the case being closed. So let's get into it. But first, I feel like there was one more thing I needed to tell you. Oh, yeah. So as you know, my book is out now, Confident Women. And um, I've been doing a lot of book promo. And I am, shall we say, frazzled. So this episode, I'm so sorry. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to come out late. And then next week, I'm going to need to take the week off. But do not fear. Do not weep. Because then I'm going to be back with a bang. And I'm pretty sure I'm coming back with a very famous case. I hear you guys. You sometimes just want to hear the really famous stories. So um, I'm going to come back with a twist on a famous, famous story. And we're going to be off to the races. There might be some other changes to criminal broads coming down the pipeline. It's all going to be good stuff. But I am going to take next week off so that, you know, I don't pull out every single strand of my hair. I'll be missing you the whole time, don't worry. Okay, without further ado, let's get into this episode. We are traveling back to 1992 to a little convent on the southeastern side of India where something terrible is about to be found. This story starts with a well, a deep hole dug into the earth meant to contain water. This well was in the courtyard of a convent owned by a very powerful branch of the Catholic Church. This convent was in a city on the eastern tip of India. If you started at the well and then zoomed out and out and out, you'd see the entire massive country of India and all the seas around it, the Arabian Sea and the Lakadive Sea and the Bay of Bengal. 
If you zoomed in and in and in, you'd see the state of Kerala and the city of Kotiem and then the convent itself, the St. Pius X convent hostel. And then you'd zoom in even further back to the courtyard and you'd see the well again. And if you kept going closer and closer and went to the edge of the well and looked in, you'd see a body. There was a body in the well on the morning of March 27, 1992. The body of a young woman, 21 years old. Her name was Sister Abaya. Her birth name was Bina Thomas. She was a novice. She was training to become a nun and studying at a college run by the Catholic Church. She'd started showing an interest in God when she was about five years old. And when she was 19, she felt called to the life of the convent. She loved being a novice, loved her studies. She was following her dream, said her brother. She had just gone to a Bible convention and she had exams coming up, which she was a little bit worried about studying for. Later, a judge would describe her as a very smart, pious, honest, simple, perseverant, and punctilious girl, meticulous in all respects. She lived a simple life of quiet devotion, and it was exactly what she had wanted. But now she was dead. She was in the well. Her body was covered in injuries, and some of them didn't seem like the type of injuries you would get from falling down a well. The police looked into the matter. Suicide, they said. Wait a second, said her father. My daughter wouldn't have killed herself. Suicide, said the police. In the country of India, Catholics are a minority, only about 1.6% of the population. But the country of India is so huge that 1.6% of the population means that there are almost 20 million Catholics in the country. In other words, the Catholic Church in India is big enough to have some real power. The hostel where Sister Abaya's body was found and the nearby nunnery were both run by a formidable denomination of the Catholic Church, the Kananiya Catholic Church. This church had money and political influence. It was in the state of Kerala, a socially conservative state of India with a far higher population of Catholics than the rest of the country. Signs of the church were everywhere. You could see nuns in white in the state's hospitals, schools, and charities. But the nuns themselves were considered to be on the lowest rung of the social ladder. So the church was powerful, but the nuns were powerless and the church had a vested interest in keeping its reputation spotless. But now, one of their novices was dead in a well. It wasn't a good look for the church. The best-case scenario for the church was that Sister Abaya had killed herself. That way, nobody else would have to get involved. And so, from the very beginning, weird things started happening around this case in an attempt to show that it was a suicide. Evidence started disappearing. Witnesses started turning hostile. The whole thing started looking like a cover-up. Several people who actually saw the crime scene on that day remember thinking that it was pretty clear a fight had taken place. There were obvious signs of a physical struggle by the well. And right inside the hostel, in the kitchen, which was right there, 
Sister Abaya's slippers were flung randomly around. One of them was on one side, one of them was over there. Her white head covering was caught in the doorway. There was a bottle of water on the floor just spilling out, and there was a small axe nearby. But the local police ignored all these signs that a fight may have taken place. It was a suicide, they said. When the special investigation unit of the state police took over the case, they said the exact same thing. This was obviously a suicide. Sister Abaya had been unhappy with her life and had jumped into the well. But Sister Abaya's family didn't buy this explanation at all. Their daughter was happy and fulfilled in her work. In fact, one of the last conversations she'd had was with her roommate. She'd asked her roommate to wake her up early so that she could start to study for her exams. If she was planning to kill herself, would she really request an early wake-up call? Sister Abaya's brother traveled to Kotiem to see his sister's body in the morgue, and he read the post-mortem report that said she had injuries to her head and fingernail marks on her neck. He was sure that something had happened to her before she fell into the well. Sister Abaya's family weren't the only skeptical ones, either. A local activist who didn't trust the police at all started pressuring authorities for a new investigation, and so did a group of 68 nuns from Sister Abaya's congregation. This case deserves a closer look, they were saying. This wasn't a suicide at all. This was something far more criminal. The pressure worked, and almost a year after Sister Abaya's mysterious death, the case was reopened and turned over to the CBI— India's Central Bureau of Investigation. This was great news, right? The CBI would definitely solve it. But the church had deep pockets and a lot of influence. And the weirdness around the case didn't go away. One of the main men on the case was a deputy superintendent of police named Varghese P. Thomas. He worked for the CBI, and he showed up believing in the suicide theory. But then he took a closer look. One of the first things he noticed was that a lot of evidence had already been destroyed. Evidence from the crime scene, Sister Abaya's slippers, her head covering, and even her diary. It just wasn't there anymore. Varghese also examined the post-mortem report that detailed the injuries on Sister Abaya's body, and he noticed that she had at least one head injury. It didn't seem like this specific injury could have happened from falling down a well. It seemed like the type of injury you'd get from being hit intentionally by a blunt object. Something like a small axe, maybe. Slowly, Varghese put together a theory not of suicide, but of homicide. He believed that Sister Abaya had woken up early to study, had come down into the kitchen to get a drink of water, and had seen something she shouldn't have seen, and then been killed for it. But before Varghese could do anything with this theory, his boss swept in and demanded that Varghese say that the death was suicide. When Varghese resisted, his boss suggested that he retire, even though Varghese was 10 years away from the normal retirement age. It was clear that 
powerful, shadowy people didn't want anyone talking about homicide in this case. And if Varghese was going to prattle on about murder, he was going to have to go. Three times, the Central Bureau of Investigation tried to close the case and make all the nastiness go away. Three times, a judge told them, nice try, but no. In 1996, the CBI submitted a report that said they couldn't figure out if Sister Abaya's death was caused by suicide or homicide, and so they wanted to close the case. They produced a doctor as an expert witness who said that Sister Abaya was severely depressed because she'd failed her exams, and also she might have been on her period, and women get suicidal when they're on their periods. The judge found this ridiculous and ordered another investigation. Three years later, in 1999, the CBI submitted their second report, saying, okay, it was a homicide, but we can't find any perpetrators, so can we please close it? The judge found this infuriating and ordered another investigation. Six years later, in 2005, the CBI tried to close the case a third time, saying this time that they just couldn't figure it out. For the third time, a judge refused to let them close it. It was not a perfect crime which would leave the investigators clueless, the judge declared. This was a murder that took place in a convent, a walled property where access was restricted. Hence, the possibility of some unknown person or an outsider committing the crime was non-existent. The details of those who could enter the compound and the inmates of the hostel could be easily ascertained and the culprits identified. In other words, the judge was saying, it's insane that this case is taking so long to solve. It shouldn't be this hard. Get back to work. And so the CBI formed a new team to take over the case and moved it to a new unit. Still, the investigation kept moving at a snail's pace, despite pressure from Sister Abaya's parents and the local activists. And then, in 2008, something changed. Someone was finally arrested. Three someones, actually. Two priests and a nun. It had been 16 years since Sister Abaya died. But this was not the first time people had been talking about these two priests and this nun. Their names had been floating around the investigation and whispered around the college where Sister Abaya studied for years. They were Father Thomas Couture, Father Joss Putrikayil, and Sister Sefi. Both of these priests taught at the school where Sister Abaya had studied, and the female students there had long thought that they were creepy. Father Couture, especially, was known for staring at his female students' legs. He was also powerfully connected, as he was the secretary for a bishop. The nun in question, Sister Sefi, was in charge of the hostel where Sister Abaya lived, and Sister Sefi's room was on the ground floor of the hostel, right by the kitchen where Sister Abaya's slippers and headdress were found. Varghese, the policeman who'd been forced to retire early, had suspected these three for years. His theory as to what had happened that fateful day was this. At 4 a.m. on the morning of her death, Sister Abaya got up to start studying for her exams. 
She studied for 15 minutes with another sister, and then she went down to the kitchen to get herself a drink of water. And there, in the kitchen, she saw the two priests and the nun in a very compromising position. Now, priests aren't supposed to have sex. Neither are nuns. They're definitely not supposed to have threesomes. They take vows of celibacy when they join the church, and breaking those vows would have gotten them in a huge amount of trouble. And so, when they saw that Sister Abaya had seen them, they panicked. Father Couture strangled her, and Sister Sefi picked up the axe and struck her over the head with it at least twice. Then the three of them dragged her to the well and threw her in. This wasn't just a scandalous theory cooked up by a rogue policeman who was about to basically be fired. There was a very important eyewitness who supported this version of events. His name was Raju, and he was a thief. On the night of Sister Abaya's death, Raju was there because he was stealing things. He had snuck into the convent to steal copper from some of the convent's wiring, and it was there that he saw Father Couture and another man sneaking in. Now, Raju was a thief, sure, but he was an honest thief. His tale was supported by the guy he sold the stolen copper wire to, who basically said, yeah, Raju stole me a bunch of stolen copper wire from the convent right after the murder happened. Raju was certain that he'd seen Father Couture, but he couldn't name the other man. But two other witnesses reported seeing the other man, Father Putrikayil, sneaking into the convent several times, including that night. However, since the case dragged on for so long, one of those witnesses passed away and the other eventually changed his story. And after several years, Father Putrikayil was released due to lack of evidence. But the rumors persisted that he had been involved. When he fell off his scooter and broke several limbs, people whispered that it was the vengeful soul of Sister Abaya punishing him. The trial of Father Couture and Sister Sefi didn't start until 2019. By then, it had been so long since the crime that many more of the key witnesses had died or turned hostile. Nobody knows exactly or technically why so many witnesses changed their stories, but people had their suspicions. Heartbreakingly, Sister Abaya's parents, who had waited so long for justice for their daughter, also passed away before the trial started. There were several pieces of compelling evidence against the priest and the nun. There was the testimony of Raju, the thief, one of the few witnesses who hadn't turned hostile. There was another witness who said that Father Couture had confessed to him that he and Sister Sefi were, quote, like husband and wife. There were photographs of Sister Abaya's body showing the wounds that the well couldn't have made, like her head wound and creepily the fingernail marks on her neck. But the weirdest piece of evidence involved Sister Sefi. Back in 2008, right before she was arrested, she had surgery done to make it seem like she was a virgin. This surgery is called hymenoplasty. Now, 
Sister Sefi's defense and some journalists argued that the focus on Sister Sefi's sex life was degrading, especially since she was a nun. But the judge made the point that this was one of those weird cases where the sex lives of those involved were painfully relevant. The whole reason Sister Abaya was killed was because Father Couture and Sister Sefi, and maybe Father Putrikayil, if you believed the rumors, were not supposed to be having the sex they were having. If they weren't having sex at all, the case falls apart. Sure, men weren't allowed to be in the nunnery, but if the priest or priests were there just having a quiet and godly conversation with Sister Sefi, why would they have reacted to Sister Abaya with such violence? The sex itself was not the crime in the eyes of the law, but it was the motive for the crime. In that hissing, dark corridor over two decades ago, they had a choice, wrote a journalist for the New Indian Express. They could have exited office and set up a home together, or gone for confessions and done their penance. Instead, they chose to kill. This was not a crime of passion, but a cold-blooded cover-up. Their mistake was not finding solace in each other to circumvent strictures of celibacy imposed upon them. They murdered a fellow human being. That is their sin. Through all of this, the church remained silent. But many people believed that the church was working busily behind the scenes and had been for almost 30 years. Right after the murder, some of Sister Abaya's fellow nuns were suddenly sent abroad or placed in other convents so that investigators couldn't reach them. The local activist, who'd worked for years to get this case solved, says that the church turned his entire family against him. At one point, he had even been threatened by Father Couture himself, who told the activist, ominously, that no one working against the church had ever been spared. In fact, almost everyone involved in this case felt themselves brush up against corruption at one point or another. Raju, the thief, says that he was tortured for 58 days by police in an attempt to get him to confess that he'd murdered Sister Abaya. The corruption acted like weights around the ankles of the case, slowing the whole thing down to an agonized crawl. And this corruption affected far more than just this specific case— in 2018, a year before the trial of Father Couture and Sister Sefi started, a terrified nun finally spoke out against the bishop who had raped her 13 times. And he was arrested, which made him the first high-ranking Indian clergyman to face charges of sexual misconduct, according to the Los Angeles Times. Nuns had tried to speak out against their abusers in the church before, but their cases never went anywhere. When we knocked at the door of the church for help, it didn't open for us, said one nun. And part of the reason for this was the death of Sister Abaya. The article in the LA Times went on to say, Catholics still talk in hushed tones about Sister Abaya, a teenage nun whose bruised body was found in a well at a Kerala convent in 1992. The case remains unsolved, and many say it has contributed to the silence surrounding sex abuse and the impunity enjoyed by the offenders. But finally, 28 years after Sister Abaya was thrown into the well, the silence was broken, and the case was officially solved. 
Even though Sister Sefi tried to argue for the suicide theory, saying that Sister Abayo was depressed, a bad student, and came from a poor family, the court was not convinced. On December 23, 2020, the judge found Father Couture and Sister Sefi guilty of murder and gave them life in prison. Upon hearing the verdict, Father Couture was stone-faced, while Sister Sefi sobbed. The courtroom was filled with their supporters, priests and nuns, all wearing snow white. And after the verdict was announced, the nuns cried, too, and rushed to console their sister. Varghese, the old policeman who thought it was a homicide back in 1993, also cried. These are tears of happiness, he told a journalist. Finally, the truth has come out. Journalists asked Father Couture what he thought, and he replied, I have done no wrong. God is with me. Others disagreed about which side exactly God was on. Journalists reached Sister Abaya's brother, Bijou, who lives in Dubai. I only wish they had left my sister alone, he said. He explained that if Father Couture and Sister Sefi had simply asked his sister not to say anything, she would have listened to them. She was not talkative, he said. Those monsters took her innocence for granted, and instead of warning her, they killed her. God has finally intervened and given them their due. The church finally broke its silence and responded to the verdict, calling it unbelievable. And the well where Sister Abaya's body was found has been filled in. The end. And rest in peace, Sister Abaya. What a tale, right? There, it's, it's really incredible to me how endlessly creepy these stories of corruption within specifically the Catholic Church are. And I am not slamming Catholics. I'm sure I have Catholic listeners, and I love you guys. Um, but it's just like when you have these really old institutions, inevitably corruption creeps in at some level or another, and cover-ups creep in. And there's just something about the the oldness of the institution and the silence. It just is obviously a little bit horror movie-esque. And I think that's why there have been so many horror movies and books and thrillers and things around this idea of, like, the silence of the church. Compelling for a horror movie, actually very sad and destructive in real life, right? Okay, I'm not going to keep you that much longer. I don't have that much to say. I just want to shout out to this week's patron, Rory. Thanks for being a patron and holding the weight of this episode on your shoulders like Atlas holding up the world. All right, again, um, we're skipping next week, but in the meantime, go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads to see photos from this week's episode and all our episodes. Email me at criminalbroads at gmail.com if you want to chat or have suggestions for future episodes. Oh, and I feel like I've forgotten to say this for several episodes, but if you like the podcast, please consider leaving a review, um, especially a review on Apple Podcasts would be really helpful. And I will see you back here in two weeks. And I'm excited about the story I'm coming back with. I think you will be compelled by it. 
All right, everyone. Have a lovely time. I hope spring is coming to where you are, and I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.